0: We're all Americans. There are so many things that we can bond over.
1: I call it the Patriot's Dilemma. This love of country is getting in the way of us actually engaging with what we don't like about our country.
0: Dolly Chug is a social psychologist and management professor at New York University Stern School of Business, where she teaches MBA courses in leadership and management. Now, Dolly's research focuses on bounded ethicality, which she describes as the psychology of good people. Boy, do we need some of that, psychology of good people. In her new book, A More Just Future, Psychological Tools for Reckoning with Our Past and Driving Social Change, Dolly offers seven tools grounded in psychological research that can help you learn and, importantly, unlearn American history. So welcome, Dolly. Congratulations on A More Just Future.
1: Oh, thank you. I appreciate
0: that. I love the optimism of this book. I hate people that complain or criticize what's going on and don't make suggestions about how to make things better. And you don't make that mistake. You talk about what needs to happen and how we can make changes that need to be made in this world. So I love that about this book.
1: Well, I appreciate you saying that. I, I like everyone else, have moments of ah, overwhelm. But in the end, I, I hope we can move towards action.
0: I do too. I want to talk about some things that I think we get stuck on. You talk about what it means to say that our history has been whitewashed. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of conversation about this and still is a lot of conversation about this. I live half the time in Texas and some of the time in California. So I've read a lot in two very different environments Mm -hmm. about that. But talk about what you mean when you use that term.
1: And I use the term... Um, sparingly, to be honest, because I know it's a term that people uh, struggle with. What I mean when I use it, what it refers to is that um, psychologically, we're all drawn to narratives that support our perspective you know there's a classic study in, in the field of psychology that took a football game that got very heated players were thrown out of the game there were you know some 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 uh you know um, mixed emotions about different calls that were made some unsportsmanlike conduct and when the psychologist went and talked to the fans of both teams this was um, a Princeton Dartmouth football game if I remember right in the study, the fans on each side were absolutely clear that it was the other side that was unsportsmanlike and that it was their team that was the victim in the situation. And, and that's, I think, a situation we, anybody who's ever watched a, a sporting event can relate to the idea that, you know, you sort of see your team in a rosier light than you see the other team. Right whitewashing of history is in some ways nothing more than that natural impulse that we present things from our own perspective. And in the United States, we have a racial history that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years, where the perspectives um, of people who have been enslaved or people who've um, you know, been been uh, had their land removed from them are going to be different than the perspective of people who didn't have that. And so, whitewashed history is referring to is the historical perspective that we've all um, learned as we've if we've grown up that we've sort of absorbed from the culture. Is it representing multiple perspectives on what happened?
0: Is confirmation bias locking us in place where? we're just not open and if so why is that
1: yeah so i mean i know that like when i when i uh propose a restaurant that you know my husband and I should try. And he says, let's look at the reviews. And then I go look at the reviews. And I, I do tend to pay attention to the five-star reviews since so this was the restaurant I proposed. That's confirmation <laughs> bias at work. And I sort of conveniently don't notice the lower star reviews. So confirmation bias is always at work for all of us. In every domain of our life where we our eyes will gravitate, our minds will gravitate to whatever reinforces our point of view. What I've been noticing um, in myself and in our society is that I think we are trying to unlearn some things. Uh, so we talk a lot about being lifelong learners, but I think there's also some lifelong unlearning that's starting to take place, and that pushes against our confirmation bias. Our confirmation bias is going to say, let me reinforce everything I've always believed to be true and fully, fully true. Um, Unlearning says, let me see if I can let go of some of that and add some new information and relearn. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people multilayered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street,
0: Essential Television. Right now, clearly, we're a divided country along so many different topics. And I always think, look, we're all Americans. There are so many things that we Can bond over. I teach negotiation skills sometimes, and I always tell people that if you're going to negotiate with somebody, the first thing you should do is sit down and say, okay, first let's talk about what we agree on. Mm. Because sometimes when you spend time to say, what do we really agree on? What do we really both want? The list of things that you need to negotiate is a lot shorter than maybe what you thought it was. I really think people have forgotten the fact that at least in theory, I thought we all love this country, that we all wanted America to be a wonderful place to live and raise our families and all of that. Not that we don't have differences, because certainly we do, but it seems like the differences have controlled the narrative instead of some of the common things, and a lot of it has to do with race, of course, not all of it, but a lot of it has to do with race. Is there a place to start this narrative where it doesn't have to be contentious and we don't have to have such vitriol over the things that we do disagree about?
1: Yeah, uh, what a great summary of where we are. I, I think there is. Um, I've been describing this uh, situation some of us feel in where we love our country so deeply and then feel like that love of country means it's hard for us to see and engage with what we don't like about our country. You know, I mean, you can, we can love our children and not like everything they do, um, but sometimes... You know, as I call it the Patriots dilemma. This love of country is getting in the way of us actually engaging with what we don't like about our country. I think the path out of the Patriots dilemma, um, as you said, we, I love my country. You love your country. So many of us share that is what I call being a gritty patriot. And this builds off of the wonderful research of psychologist Angela Duckworth on grit, where grit is passion and perseverance in pursuit of a meaningful long-term goal. And here I'm thinking about our love of country is what we're pursuing as our meaningful long-term goal is keeping this country as vibrant as it can be for our children and grandchildren, but doing it in a way that is active, like you said at the beginning of our conversation. And instead of feeling we're entitled to love of country, to easy love of country, to realizing that sometimes our country breaks our heart. Sometimes our children break our heart. We can still love them. We can still support them and help them do better. And I think being a gritty patriot is something we could all get behind.
0: I love this country, but I don't think it's perfect. I don't put it on a pedestal. It's just like in relationships. I would hate for anyone in a relationship to ever put their significant other on a pedestal because you're doomed to failure when you do that, because they're not perfect. You're setting them up to fail. It's going to come tumbling down. I don't think you're being disloyal as an American to say, I love this country, but boy, there are a lot of things about it that I want to make better, that I want to see improve. And when you talk about being a gritty patriot, to me, that seems to be a path forward. It's saying, love your country, but have a to-do list. <laughs> yeah.
1: I love that. I love that. Love your country, but have a to-do list. That's great. It's it's it, You know, it's a little bit like letting go of the Instagrammed version of our country, you know, that sort of airbrushed view of it.
0: Yeah, exactly. There's certain parts of this country where I think civil rights progress has been almost a media phenomenon as opposed mm-hmm. to a real world phenomenon, or it's certainly been embellished in the media versus the way it plays out in real life. Mm-hmm. Then there are other parts of the country where I think much more progress has been made. A good friend of mine, Debbie Draper, did a mm-hmm. documentary on. Black Wall Street and mm-hmm. what happened in Tulsa, and we're working together on a project now called Freedom Georgia, a mm-hmm. docu series about Freedom Georgia and what the families are working on down there to mm-hmm. create a reality. And it's astounding to me how many people in America have no idea what happened in Tulsa. Mm-hmm. it wasn't taught they're not mm-hmm. aware of it when they hear about it when they see what actually took place are absolutely appalled
1: and I will I was in that group until a few years ago it was only very recently i and I think it was um in reading a book of fiction actually and I'm blanking on the author's name but it was reading some you know page Turner book that had it as a historical event um you know this is we know from studies by people like James Lowen, who's a historiographer, he's a historian who studies how we study history, kind of meta, um, that a lot of us, this wasn't in our textbooks, this wasn't in our classrooms, it's not our teacher's fault, no one's blaming the teachers, but again, you know, it's where we started our conversation. There's been limited perspectives that that we've been exposed to, some of us myself included. And so, yes, when we then learn about it, there's actually a lot of disbelief. Um, Sometimes there's feelings of shame or guilt. Sometimes the shame and guilt is about what happened. Sometimes it's about the fact that we didn't know what happened. Excuse me. And so what you're describing, I'm so delighted to hear you're, you're involved in those media projects because so often it is through these narratives that come through books and movies and documentaries and podcasts that we hear about things like this as we sort of work to also in the classroom kind of create that, that um, fact-telling.
0: I actually went to college. I started my college career at the University of Tulsa, mm-hmm. and I had a history professor that took the approach of teaching what he called the underside of American history. Oh, interesting. He said, you know, you need to buckle up <laughs> because we're going to talk about the real ugly parts of how we got to where we are. And this was back in 1968, 1969. Wow. He was just somebody that said, let's look at what were not our finest hours, but contributed to who we are. And so I got an early exposure to this. That's
1: amazing.
0: Yeah. He was yeah. way ahead of his time. I, he really talking was. Talking about that. And. Really watching kids drop out of that class in a hurry was a shock to me. And I'm like, I can't get enough of this because I had had the Instagram version Uh in high school. And now I hear somebody's telling me, yeah, let me tell you what happened in the back rooms. Let me tell you what happened when people weren't watching. Let me tell you what they didn't talk about. And it didn't make me love my country any less, but it certainly made me feel like I knew what was really going on. So I didn't feel naive. I didn't feel like Mm -hmm. I was getting conned.
1: That's 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 amazing. Yeah. Well and you know the James Lowen who I just referred to, he did an analysis of our of textbooks. And this is, you know, a few decades after the class you're describing. And he found, if I remember the statistics right, he took like the 18 most popular, uh, widely used US history textbooks And he found that something like half of them didn't even have the word racism in the index. Um, And that when they described words, uh, phenomena like slavery or segregation, racism was not used as an explanation for what happened. So it, it, it really is like rare to find a place uh, where we get the kind of, that was it the underside, I think you said, yes. of American history. It's, it's just not that easily available. What a gift that you had it so young.
0: Now, you talk about some psychological tools in helping people wrap their minds around this. I'm interested in talking about this because I think a lot of people misinterpret some of what I think, is being asked, and I think a lot of what you are talking about here, I think a lot of people take this as a personal attack or a personal affront. I did a show a few years ago on implicit bias and white privilege. White privilege, I was talking about the fact that this is something that you may Have a windfall from that you may benefit from, but it is not necessarily anything that you're doing actively, affirmatively, consciously on a day to day basis that you need to correct in your behavioral repertoire, but it's built in, it's systemic to our society. And I gave the example that I can walk into. department store and kind of wander around like I'm lost in the desert while my wife is shopping and nobody follows me. Nobody bothers me. And I'm six foot four and bald and stick out like a sore thumb. (laughs) If I was me and black, that wouldn't necessarily be the case. That doesn't mean that you did anything to bring that about. this year, but that's just built in. And I had to shut off the comments Mm -hmm. on all of my social (laughs) media platforms because I didn't want my viewers being exposed to some of the language Mm -hmm. that was being said in the comment sections on those media platforms for having the audacity to say that I would be afforded some privilege that a black me might not be afforded, and yeah. the things that were said, I just had turn it off because I thought I don't want people to have to hear some of the things being said.
1: Yeah, well, I appreciate you sharing that. You know, I Debbie Irving, um, writer uh, Debbie Irving, has a metaphor of headwinds and tailwinds that I've found found really useful in talking about privilege. And the way it goes is that it's the idea is, um, you know, let's say I was to go out for a run. My kids laugh when they hear me (laughs) use this. They're like, (laughs) let's say, mom. Um, But let's say, and, uh, you know, I I say, okay, I'm going to, you know, run to that corner with the fire hydrant and then I'm going to U turn back. And while I'm running, I'm thinking, "Hmm, you know, I think this cross training is paying off. I'm, I'm feeling pretty good, making pretty good time. And then I make the U-turn to come back and I find myself struggling. And suddenly I have this, you know, desire to quote unquote, tie my shoe (laughs) for a long period of time. And in that return home, when I'm struggling, if someone who was looking out a window watching me run were to see me, they might say, hmm, Dolly doesn't look like she's much of a runner or she must come from, you know. Doesn't look like she comes from a family that values running or they might have all sorts of external explanations for for why I wasn't or internal uh, explanations for why I wasn't running well. Well, what we would actually have as an explanation is that on my way out, I had a tailwind that I couldn't really feel because you don't actually feel tailwinds, even though they improve your performance. On my way back, I had a headwind that I can feel it. But the people watching me through the windows can't. And so privilege is really just, to me, one way to think about it is we all have some headwinds and some tailwinds in our life. But the, the the sneaky thing is when we have tailwinds, we don't feel them. So we get angry when people say we have privilege because we're like, what do you mean? I was just making good time on my run. I was cross-training and doing better. And the fact is I probably was cross-training and doing better, but I also had a tailwind.
0: Right. What's your suggestion on how we get people to understand that that's not a personal indictment of something that they have done discriminatorily today? So I I think there's two ways to think about that.
1: Uh, One is that it's okay if we sometimes are making mistakes that are contributing to the problem. So I have in my first book, I had an entire chapter called... um, if you're not part of the problem, you're not part of the solution. And what I meant by that was we can we 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 didn't create this problem, but we we did inherit it. And that means that in some ways we are part of it. And what we that that to-do list you mentioned earlier begins with us recognizing the ways in which I benefit from the the tailwinds that that you know you just described a tailwind. So it isn't that I did something wrong, but I do benefit from it. And until I can see that, it's hard to engage with how to fix it. Um, the second thing is I talk a lot in my work about being goodish instead of a good person. And my my whole premise is that we want to let go of being a good person because it's this brittle binary, I'm good or bad, and we're all going to sort of elect to see ourselves as good. Um, as opposed to being goodish where we're seeing ourselves as a work in progress. know back to this idea of like a growth mindset where we're always getting better but that doesn't mean that you know i'm a professor that doesn't mean that i don't sometimes confuse two black male students who do not look alike at all but i still confuse them for each other because i'm relying on some shortcut or that i my teaching assistant didn't uh track my calling patterns and tell me that i call on men disproportionately more than women and i interrupt women Those things, they're my behaviors, but I can also view it as something that I'm constantly uh, working on instead of I have to be perfect all the time, a good person all the time.
0: I've always said you can't change what you don't acknowledge. Mm -hmm. And I think in this cancel culture, an awful lot of people are afraid to acknowledge something is an admission of guilt. I mean, I've had them tell me that. I've asked my audience before, because I really try to get the audience to participate, comment, mm-hmm. ask questions. And I've asked them how many of you today are not raising your hand because you don't want to be labeled? You don't want to cross some line, and you're self censoring because you're mm-hmm. afraid that you're going to run a red light mm-hmm. and get labeled. It looked like the wave at a football game. Every hand in the room went up and said, I'm not saying squat, Doc. Listen, this isn't touchy for me. I don't have today's glossary, and it seems to change almost daily. Yeah. I really don't know. So to admit that I have a bias, oh, my God, I'm afraid I might be applying for a job three years from now and somebody pull up this clip where I was in the audience and said, Yeah, Uh I admit I have some thoughts, feelings, or behaviors that I think are driven by bias either unconsciously or otherwise that I'm well intended but I'm not perfect. I'm scared to death something like that might happen.
1: Right, right. Yeah. And so I mean, you know, I I could I could be empathetic to someone not wanting to on tv kind of expose themselves and most of us are not on tv on a regular basis the way you yeah, are that's a
0: tough test for yeah you know. I know
1: but um and, and what i tell people when they ask me about cancel culture and things like that is i say the vast majority of us unlike dr phil are not celebrities are not going to be canceled in the way that you know when we talk about someone being canceled and a big stage the most of us are Within our communities, our families, our workplaces, we are our, our our religious um, organizations. We are trying to interact with the people in our orbit, and what we know about daily interactions and interpersonal interactions is that taking ownership, apologizing sincerely, um, being a genuine learner—these uh, are all things that are actually really effective in interpersonal relationships. So the idea that we would present ourselves as sort of flawless i don't think it's believed by others in fact the data would suggest that you know if 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 i'm in front of a black person i'm not black and i'm claiming to have no bias i'm actually distancing myself and decreasing trust because they're they're unlikely to believe me as being sincere and self-aware
0: I think that's true, but I think there's a difference between claiming yourself to be flawless and affirmatively acknowledging <laughs> that you that you have biases. And but I don't know. I'm here to learn. So see there. I'm, <laughs> so am I. I'll own it. I am here to learn. And you know, one of the things you talk about is you use your research findings in part to help people how to be a better colleague to people that don't look like you and not being a well-intentioned barrier to equality. So talk about that some. How do you be a better colleague to people that don't look like you and not just in a high profile but at the factory at the university at the retail store
1: absolutely well i i actually think this is this is where what you and i were just sort of grappling with is exactly where it comes to head Uh, we begin with the idea of um i love this rule that i learned from one of michael bungay stanier's books uh the weight rule the w-a-i-t why am I talking rule? <laughs> and here are the ideas. If someone tells me, and I've had this happen to me in my workplaces, someone tells me, you just used a word that's inappropriate, you know, and, and that's that's offensive, or it has a history that's that's problematic. My impulse in that moment, I'll be just totally transparent, is to sort of I can feel myself get defensive, like kind of red zone defensive. I want to explain to them what a good person I am and how, you know, mistaken they are that I would mean any harm by that. Like, in other words, I want to start talking. That's the moment where I actually, and this is where if I can go into my goodish space right, and if I can breathe for a second and use the weight rule, this is an opportunity for me to say, Oh, maybe there's something here that I've stepped in. Whoops, that feels awful. I may have sort of done harm to someone else. That feels awful. But someone's taking the risk of telling me. Maybe I can simply say, can you tell me more? Or I didn't know that. Or I want to apologize. I didn't know that. I'm going to look into it if they don't look like they're in the mood to to, um, engage with me. The idea here is that... uh, When we're interacting with people who have different perspectives, different lived experiences, they look different than us or they pray different than us or they they speak differently than us. These are all moments where the more we can take in in a curious way, what I find I do a lot better. I build more trust with people in that mindset than when I'm in this, well, actually, you see, you know, like I can easily go into a place of, defending myself rather listening to them.
0: God, I love your thinking. I think we should have a council culture, not a cancel culture. Oh. Because I think it would make so much sense if somebody does something, whether it's they step on a landmine with the transgender community or the mm-hmm. LGBTQ community in general or cross a boundary in the racial mm-hmm. interactions or whatever it might be. I think Twitter is not a real place. (laughs) And I think we have keyboard bullies that sit and type things in their grandmother's basement in the dark that they would never say to somebody in an elevator. Mm. But you see somebody that'll say something that is offensive to their sensibilities. And instead of saying what you just said, Oh, tell me more about that or help me with that cuz that certainly wasn't my intention. Instead, what you get is I hope your dog dies. I'm going to come to your house and cut your throat. If you read the things I know that they type, that's the knee jerk cancel culture. I've seen it done to people that are actually allies.
1: Right. Right.
0: And they need friends. They they're, they're yeah. running off well spoken influential allies, it's like a gotcha game. Mm. If somebody chooses the wrong word or says something in an awkward way, it's like, gotcha! Yeah. Then everybody jumps on the bandwagon instead of saying, wait a minute, what's this person really stand for? Let's look at who they are across the board. Mm -hmm. Was this a one-off? And if I mention something about it, do they reframe it or say it differently? And sometimes when they do, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, so now you're sorry. Yeah. That drives me so crazy that we do that I know. to each other instead of doing what you just said. That's why I say we need a counsel culture mm. where we just say, hey, listen, you may not know, but just consider this and then do with it what you will.
1: I, I, and I wish I understood better I often wonder, you know, the folks that are doing that, like what percent of the population is it? Because when it happens, it feels like suddenly you're surrounded by it and you're swimming in it. But is it, you know, this tiny little percentage that's, that's, you know, peeing in the pool that's yeah. messing it up for everybody? But regardless, it it, it feels like, you know, that's, that's what it feels like. I think the reality is, um, I have to keep reminding myself that. The more I kind of engage with this on my own in my own learning and unlearning process, the better prepared I am if that happens. right? So I think what happens, I think, with some people is because they're worried about cancel culture, it becomes an opportunity to shut down the sort of learning and reflection process Mm -hmm. as opposed to doubling down on it. Uh, this is the moment to double down. If you're really worried about cancel culture, well, then try to understand where it's coming from, not the, the toxic piece of it, but the the sort of the underlying um, uh, m- messages around what people, what other more reasonable people are asking for.
0: That's why I say I don't think Twitter's a real place. <laughs> Good. But it doesn't just happen with high-profile people. There have been more professors with tenure dismissed mm-hmm. for complaints from students in the last 10 to 15 years than has happened since the McCarthy era mm-hmm. with students that I think are hypersensitive and not thick-skinned enough to say, hey, i don't like what you said so i disagree with you i want to talk about that or debate that but anywhere from 15 to 30% of students now think it's okay to yell down a speaker you disagree with on campus mm-hmm. what's that all about i thought university is where you went to hear other points of view to get other people's point of view but i've got a lot of really good friends that are comedians I mean good comedians that will fill <laughs> up an arena. Yeah. 10,000 people and they won't go to a college campus. Yeah. They say there's no sense of humor there and there's mm. no upside to going. So they literally will not book a college campus and have not for the last 5 or more years. Wow.
1: That's that's really telling.
0: Yeah, I
1: so I'm a little bit torn on this one. Um And and the reason is that there's this metaphor that some people use of heat and light as being different ways to influence people. And light is where you kind of meet people where they are and you're incremental and kind of teaching dialogue, um, discussion. And I'm I'm certainly my temperament and my skills are in that toolkit. Um, But there's also heat which is confrontational and and uh, disruptive. Not my temperament or my toolkit, my skill set. But what I when I looked at some research about um, when how change happens in society, what I saw was that um, at times when there was a lot of light and not much heat, or a lot of heat and not much light, and this, this is me applying the metaphor. To, I think right. they called it more like moderate and radical. Um, they there wasn't as much change made as when there was a balance of both.
0: Right.
1: And so it's made me actually. I'm not. I'm not endorsing any specific thing you said, but I am saying in general, it's made me much more appreciative that there are people willing to bring the heat, knowing that I'm not one of those people. Um, and and my theory, I have no data on this, but this is my theory. My theory is that light changes minds, but heat changes systems. And that's why we kind of need both. And And, you know, it does lead to some really awful scenarios like some of the ones you just described.
0: You said, I'm not endorsing anything you just said. What is it you want to be careful not to endorse?
1: Oh, and meaning I don't know, I don't know every specific case where a professor was dismissed, and you know, I've know some cases out there, but I haven't done a deep dive. so I, I I don't have a particular point of view over whether a particular professor should or should not have been dismissed in those cases.
0: Oh, I don't either. I'm sure there are some people that would be better off going and doing some other job. <laughs> some of them probably <laughs> needed to be run out. But I'm just saying it's interesting that it's spiked of late. And I think that's more about the fact that maybe these students aren't being goodish enough and trying to be good. Uh, You say goodish people are always growing.
1: yeah. And
0: to do that, you got to at least weigh the other side's point of view, right? You got to at least be willing to listen and reject it. I've been in this profession for 45 plus years, and I always tell people, look, I'm not the repository of all knowledge. And if anything I tell you, I try to only talk about evidence-based therapies. If it doesn't have some empirical basis to it, I try not to talk about it. Even so, I tell people, if what I tell you won't withstand challenge, hit the eject button and go find Mm -hmm. something better, but at least consider it.
1: Yeah, And if it's no
0: good, then move on. You talk about something, helping people to find their ordinary privilege, Mm -hmm. the part of your everyday identity that you take for granted. Can you expand on that for our listeners a little bit?
1: Sure, absolutely. Uh, First, though, I have to give you uh, a shout-out to my dad, who I think once heard you say, I forget if it's to give – that every idea is a good idea for 15 minutes or 15 seconds. Oh, yeah. Seconds. I always
0: say, love every idea for love, 15 minutes. <laughs>
1: 15 minutes it is right. And uh he's he's had to remind me of that a few times. And I've been like, Did <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about? And uh so he's well, Dr. Phil says and so on. That that gets quoted in our home a lot. Um and I wasn't sure if he had uh taken 15 seconds and turned it into 15 minutes for the Dolly modification. <laughs> um so ordinary privilege is the, um, so we talked about headwinds and tailwinds and how we don't always feel them. Another way is sort of, I, I keep, you know, I, I study the things I need to work on, quite frankly. So, so I'm always looking for ways to understand them better so I can implement them. So this idea of headwinds and tailwinds, I'm like, well, how do I know if I can't feel my tailwinds, how am I supposed to know I have tailwinds? Um, so one way I've been thinking about it is let's say we think about all the identities we hold. And so, you know, off the top of my head, I'll just use myself. I'll say, well, you know, I'm a woman, I'm a professor, I'm a mother, I'm Indian American, children of immigrants. Um, off top of my head, those are some identities. Well, what are the identities that were not top of mind for me that I didn't even think about in that moment? One example might be is I didn't say I'm straight. Like honestly, I don't think too much about whether or not I'm straight, I have pictures of my husband all over my office. I hold his hand in public. I, I refer to him you know, in professional settings and, and with my family. That uh, freedom I have is a tailwind because some people, uh, people from the LGBTQ community may not feel they have that freedom uh, in their workplace and in their families. They may not feel safe doing that in certain settings. And that, because I don't, have to think about that, that identity, it's kind of ordinary in my life. It's just built into uh, my day-to-day life. It's a tailwind because I don't think about it. I don't feel it the same way that somebody who has a headwind in that identity might be wrestling with it. Right. And the so that's, that's one way to figure out where those tailwinds are is what's the identity that's so ordinary in my life um, or ordinary in the world around me, I don't have to think about it or navigate it. And then the the sort of the optimistic um, little scientific takeaway here is that there's research that says from, from multiple scholars that when we're, let's say someone tells a racist joke, right? And let's say we take, white Dr. Phil versus black Dr. Phil. You gave us those two personas earlier. If white Dr. Phil says, hey, that's not cool to the person telling the racist joke versus black Dr. Phil says, hey, that's not cool. What the data says is that white Dr. Phil will be taken more seriously in that situation, whereas black Dr. Phil will be viewed as perhaps um, having a sense of entitlement or being whiny. And it's ironic because maybe white Dr. Phil doesn't feel directly affected by that joke, whereas black Dr. Phil does. But the research says that when we're not sort of the targeted, um, the group that's sort of targeted in this particular issue, we're actually taken more seriously. So the optimistic scientific takeaway here is that that ordinary privilege, the identities I don't think that much about, that I probably have tailwinds, that means someone else has headwinds, I also have an opportunity, instead of feeling helpless when I watch whatever unfold, unfold, that I actually have a little more influence than I thought in that identity, that maybe in that meeting I might you know, speak up rather than stay quiet or in that family gathering, I might be like, I don't know if you really wanted to say it that way, um, rather than thinking, well, this doesn't affect me. I don't have a place in the conversation.
0: Let me ask you this, because you bring up a really important point there. You say you may have a tailwind being straight in that you have some clues about it around and it's kind of subtly stated, and so you don't have to stake out that territory, that ground, whereas someone else might have to Mm -hmm. invest energy and effort in doing that. And then there are other areas where you might have to invest effort Mm -hmm. and energy in your life. Isn't that part of individuality where Mm. some people have to lean in to some areas more than others? I wonder sometimes if that's really okay, if that's something where if called on for it, we can be supportive, but is it our job to change everything to make that person have a tailwind, to make that person oh. feel more comfortable? Because I hear a lot of people say, I have no issue with that whatsoever, nor do I feel that it's on my To do list. Mm -mm. I hear people say, I feel like they are beating me over the head with that. (laughs) And it's causing resentment on my part when I don't want to feel that. I don't want to feel that resentment. Yeah. But yet I feel like I'm being force fed and beaten over the head with it. Yeah. And you're saying it may be because they're feeling a headwind there, but is that their perception or is that? your job i wonder how you answer because i get asked that a lot
1: yeah so i i'm not actually i i'd like to be better at this but i'm not sure that i'm as persuasive as i'd like to be in convincing people who who don't want that on their to-do list you know to put it on their to-do list i think where i have been more effective and, and found lots of people wanting to engage is people who have it on their to-do list, but don't know how to do it. You know, who are struggling for tools or feeling helpless or saying, you know, I'm not directly affected. So I'm, this isn't, it's not that I don't care. It's that I don't think I'm supposed to be engaging. Like it's, I'm supposed to like yield the floor, and of course there there may be some value in that too the why am i talking rule um so i'm not saying that we're not that both both groups of people aren't out there and there might be some overlap between them but i'm not sure that i i know that i have just the right pitch to the folks who who feel that there's too much and you know i need i need it to sort of pause
0: i did a show recently entitled you can't say that
1: Okay.
0: It had a list of words that were offensive to people's sensibilities that we determined by doing a fair amount of research. And on the list was mom and dad. Mm. You can't say mom and dad anymore. And I was like, okay, I'm here to learn. So tell mm. me why you can't say mom and dad anymore. And a... A woman in the audience said, well, at my home, we don't have a mom and a dad. Mm -hmm. We have a mom and a mom. Right. And it hurts our daughter's feelings to bring home a letter that says, dear mom and dad. To which my first response was, you've never taken home a letter that said, dear mom and dad. Show me a letter, go home, find it, send me a letter that said, (laughs) dear mom and dad. It always says parents, Uh. dear parents. It doesn't say dear mom and dad. Are you making a problem where one doesn't exist? Uh. And I've called my mom and dad, who are both passed away, mom and dad, for 70 years. Mm -hmm. Am I supposed to change how I refer to my parents because your nuclear family is a mom and a mom. Mm. I asked that as not a rhetorical question. It really was, are you saying, are you expecting that for you to be comfortable that I change the way I refer to my deceased parents?
1: How did they answer?
0: Well, very nice lady, by the way. And she said, no, not really, not personally, but I don't want... My daughter to feel like she is in some way different or inferior. She's, I think that's why that's on the list. Yeah. I said, well, you know, that may be why it's on the list, but I guess that's what I'm saying when some people say, is that my fight to mm. take up? And do I need to change my life pattern because you have a daughter? That's living in a mom and mom home. I think that's where people say, have we gone too far where we're spending our time working on this kind of thing when we have other battles to fight?
1: Yeah, yeah. And
0: that's what I mean when I say some people say, should this be on my to-do list?
1: It it seems improbable to me uh, that people are asking other people to change what they call their own parents. It seems highly probable to me that in forms at the doctor's office and communications from schools, as you were referring to, in places like that it It just makes logical sense in a multi-generational world, in a world with different kinds of family structures to just say something like adult uh, one, adult two, or something like that. like when I fill out, i i will I will I will out myself here and say that when I fill out a doctor's form and it says mother's name, father's name, and I'm straight, I cross out mother and father and I write parent one and parent two or adult one and adult two for exactly the reason that i it doesn't to me that's an easy fix it doesn't hurt anyone it includes more people rather than fewer people and it's more accurate it's a, it's 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 in a world where we know there's so many different family structures there's step families and there's there's um gay families and there's grandparents raising kids why not create an environment and when it's when it's so easy to just let people fill in whoever is the appropriate parent and guardian in their home? Um, th- that that, for me, is different than saying, Dr. Phil, this is how you should refer to your your deceased parents, and I am sorry uh, that they they're no longer in your your life. Um, those seem like very different issues to me.
0: Yeah, and as I say, this was a delightful woman, and she said, I'm just talking about anything that someone might say that would cause my daughter to feel differently, and no, I don't expect you to change it after oh, 70 good. years. Oh, so oh, she good. was a was... absolutely delightful woman and not trying to stir up trouble or whatever. But she said, this is why that's on the list, and yeah. I learned something from what she said. But I won't change how I refer to my mother and father,
1: and want she was say, "No what I want you to, yeah, no, agreed. and and I that is a that's a good example of one where, gosh, if it's you know, if if it's if it's not presented correctly, it sounds absurd. It just sounds ridiculous, um, as opposed to if it's a very specific, like, can we just, you know, on paperwork when we're speaking to big groups of people, include all of them?
0: Yeah, and that was one of those situations where. I thought she contributed to the conversation by making people think about, oh, well, okay, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Master bedroom was on the list. Yeah. And I knew that one, but I had someone comment on it and explained what used to happen in the master's bedroom. And a lot of people, light bulbs came on over their head. And so it was a great discussion.
1: Yeah, that's a new one. That's one that in the course of writing A More Just Future, that's where that one came to my awareness. And and I understand in the real estate industry, there's been some shifting of vocabulary. I have to confess, I still can't. The word master bedroom comes out of my mouth. Like, you know, if I'm saying, oh, we need to repair the air conditioner in the master bedroom, I'm like, oh, so it's a process. Yeah.
0: Habits are hard to change. That's why I say you can remind yourself or someone could gently remind you instead of attack you. <laughs> Yeah. about it which sometimes happens. Yes. But I love your concept of a goodish person versus a good person because that means we're all works in progress, right?
1: Exactly. It means
0: we're all growing and changing and we don't have to meet some absolute standard.
1: That's right, exactly. And I'll say one more thing about since you said standard. I consider goodish to be a higher standard than good. Um, oh, for sure. Right? Cuz good is yeah. just like you just like you just get to declare it and and don't have to work for it. Whereas goodish, I'm like, you know, it's like flossing, I got to do it every day. Um it's an yeah. ongoing thing. But in most parts of our life, we're proud that, that we're, you know, we're better at our jobs now than we were a year ago or you know, we're better at using that technology now than we were a year ago. When it comes to this part of our lives called being a good person, we somehow think that we're just supposed to like have it in a static way as opposed to being able to say, I'm I'm a better person now than I was a year ago. And I think this idea of being good speaks to that, that higher standard of let's just keep getting better.
0: There's one thing that I wanted you to talk about a little bit, if you will, and I don't want to keep you forever and I'm no. okay. had such a great discussion, but in your book in chapter 5 you talk about rejecting some racial fables. Mm. If you would talk about that a little bit for the listeners.
1: Sure. Well, I, in that chapter I I I tell the story of a 42-year-old woman named Louise McCauley, who since she was a child had been um it was a, a black girl in uh the 1960s and or growing up in the 40s and 50s. And she, uh, her grandparents were worried that she was um, so willing to speak up if a white child sort of expected her to move off the sidewalk, as was the norm uh, in her community, that she would sort of, she would, she would fight that kid rather than move off the sidewalk. And that as an adult, she had her full-time job, but then she would spend each evening and each weekend, volunteering for the NAACP. Um, and this woman who was so had so much courage and conviction in, in um, commitment to racial justice was one day coming home from work and she was asked to yield her seat to a white uh, white passenger, and she refused to do it. And the police ended up being called, and she said, when the police arrived, why do you push us around? Um, and she would be arrested, and uh, Dr. Martin Luther King would get wind of this uh, this stance that she had taken in Montgomery, Alabama, because uh, Louise McCauley's full name was Rosa Louise McCauley Parks. And I share her full name now because the story I just told you is so different than the story I learned and that most of us have learned about Rosa Parks, um, in which she was a tired seamstress that was an accidental activist, it was elderly, she was 42. <laughs> <Yeah>. and, <laughs> and uh and and that you know she Pointed out this this injustice and um, and and Dr. King came in and sort of amplified this injustice, and then the population said, "Oh my gosh, that's right. We should fix that." And and thus change happened. Um, that second version of the story I told is is a fable. It's not true. There's ample evidence. It's not controversial. The gene the uh. Jean Thea Harris has written the um, the sort of definitive uh, scholarly biography and Soldat O'Brien has a documentary now out based on it that shows the first version of the history that I just described as what really happened. But this fable where there's sort of accidental activism and widespread support is problematic because it leads us, it leads me and it leads us as a society to expect that that's how change happens. That it happens in a way that's that's easily digested, that's linear, um, that's not polarizing. And the reality is that's not how change happened then. By the way, many other people had attempted what she attempted before and not been successful. It had not led to widespread support and marches and movements. Um, which is another thing about the messiness of how change happens is there's lots of failed attempts and then there's some unexpected tipping point that we can't quite describe where why in that moment it galvanized people. And so I I realized that I, I'm not even really a history buff. So this idea of thinking about the past is coming from my interest as a psychologist and understanding how people think and act. Um, And so I realized that my understanding of the past is just, boy, one fable after another. And I think I'm sort of average in my knowledge of American history. I'm deep in my love of my country, but maybe average in my deep uh, historical knowledge. And this fable that a lot of us like me have internalized sets us up to look at efforts to make change now and feel like they're not working because it's not fitting that linear fable-like narrative.
0: That is so well said, because if people think it's supposed to happen in this way and it's not, then it's like, I'm doing something wrong. (laughs) If they understand that's not the way it happened to begin with, that's not the way it does happen, then they maybe don't judge themselves so much and continue to work not in a linear fashion, but just continue to work. And things right. happen sometimes simultaneously, right. sometimes in three different locations at the same time. Yeah. But we've been talking about Dolly's book, A More Just Future. The subtitle is Psychological Tools for Reckoning with Our Past and Driving Social Change. You make so much sense. The book is broken into Three parts. How do we start? What do we do? Where do we go from here? And where do we go from here has two chapters in it that are entitled Take Responsibility and Build Grit. Boy, it just makes so much sense. The way you talk about this, it makes it really hard for people to be threatened rather than inspired, Mm -hmm. and to not take these messages really aspirational, things that you really want to aspire to. And that's why I started this whole thing by saying the optimism in your book, absent the judgment, and not with naive optimism, but just saying, look, this is doable. We can make things better. We can create social change is so true. This book should be required reading for every young person in high school. It should be required reading for all 435 representatives in the House and all 100 senators in the Senate. And I'll buy copies and send them to every one of them if they'll read it. Oh, my goodness. It would be so important. It's a point of view. It's an approach that can't not bring about change because it takes away the threat and the defensiveness.
1: I'm blushing. Dr. Thank you so much. I uh, I feel like you've seen and felt my intent, which is uh, I, I set out to write a book that leaves the reader hopeful and resilient and with a path forward um, using stories and science and fueled by my love of country. Thank you for seeing that.
0: Well, I do see it and I do feel it. I love Chapter 5. I have to say it was one of my favorite chapters in Mm -hmm. the whole thing. Like I say, I started with the underside of American history in 1968, and then to read about these fables here, really interesting. I just think people will love this book, and I really hope people will pick this up and read it. I promise you, you'll be glad you did, and you can write me and tell me, (laughs) <laughs> I lied if you don't, because I'll take that risk, oh, but I gosh. stand by it. It's an excellent book. I would love to have you on the show to talk about some of these things when we talk about how to bring about change and how mm-hmm. to close up the divisiveness in the country. I think you're a thought leader in this, Dolly. I really do. I think you're a thought leader in how to close the gap in the divisiveness in this country right now.
1: I'm honored, and it would, it would be my honor.
0: Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. I really do look forward to talking to you again. And you're a better historian than you give yourself credit for. (laughs) Excellent psychologist, but a pretty damn good historian as well. And tell your dad he's a wise man. That's all I can say. Oh, there
1: you go. There you go. My mom and dad are the best. Thank you for uh, that acknowledgement.
0: Listen, thank you so much. And I look forward to talking again soon.
1: I can't wait. Thanks, Dr. Phil.
0: Again, the book is A More Just Future by Dolly Chug, Psychological Tools for Reckoning with Our Past and Driving Social Change. And it is spectacular. So I highly recommend it. That's it for today. Thanks, everyone.